Good morning. Um, we are continuing in the, in the gospel according to Luke, and uh, we're going we're, we're gonna to talk about a passage that you're all, almost everyone in the room, is very familiar with. I do want to ask you, as I do almost each week, because we, we've gone through these gospels over the years so many times, um, I want to ask you to try to hear it as if it's for the first time. Um, and with these ears, so I'm going to give you a little background on it. Um, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And a teacher of the law comes up to Jesus, and he wants to test him. And he, he comes to Jesus, and he asks, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they, they kind of walk through that. And then he said, Jesus said, you know, the, love, love the Lord your God with everything you have. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus says, yep, doing good. And he goes, who's my neighbor? Now, just a little background on this. There was a rabbinic, like rabbis and, and lawyers, but they're religious lawyers. Um, that's what this man is. There was a tradition that we don't have in our Bible um, because it wasn't inspired by God. But uh, there was a tradition in a book called Sirach. So it's Sirach chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, that basically walks through and convinces Jewish people, Jewish leaders in particular, that your neighbor is only a person that is in God's chosen family. So you don't have to, te- you don't have to treat people with kindness and dignity if they're not God's chosen people. So in other words, if you're not Jewish, I don't have to care about you. So that was, that was standard fare. You, in fact, you'll see it several times in the, in the Gospels when people ask Jesus something like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. But then this, this who's my neighbor and how, how, am I, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother when he sins against me? All that kind of thing. It's, they had worked out a way to make it so that you only had to be nice to people that, you, that were nice to you, and you only had to treat people with dignity and respect if they were one of your people. So that's what Jesus is, that's what he's countering, which he does often. If you think about it, you've heard it that it was said to the people long ago, do not swear, do not swear an oath to under, under heaven, on earth, or under the earth, or don't swear by God, just simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Because people were trying to figure out how they could make a promise and not keep it. They were trying to figure out if they did not swear by God or swear under heaven or swear by the earth or swear by uh, Hades, then they didn't have to keep their promises. So it was kind of a trick kind of a thing. It was like, hey, we didn't shake on it. Remember that was as, as a kid? Or stick stack, did you guys do this? I was from, I'm from Georgia. So stick stack, no take back? You didn't, you didn't have, okay, that was a, that was a me thing. Um, but there was, it was a way of, hey, look, I didn't swear, I didn't promise. And we did as kids, you might have said stuff like, I swear on my mother's life. Or I swear, uh, let me see, um, what's the one stick a needle in my eye? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. It's a way of saying, no, really, really, I promise. So God had given commands to his people on how they're supposed to behave and how they're supposed to treat other people, and they figured out ways to not do it. So that's the context of what Jesus is talking. When he's talking to this lawyer, he, this lawyer is testing him to see if he knows the rabbinic tradition and if he's going to agree with the legal perspective on it. And Jesus flips flips things upside down. So let me pray. 
we'll read. And I think that at the end, I'm not saying that I've come up with anything new. That would be very Gnostic of me. Um, but but there's, a, there's, a, there's a change of mindset that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples who are overhearing this, to the lawyers, and to us. And it's a difficult and nuanced thing to see. So, yeah, let's pray. Lord, you're the one who speaks the truth. In fact, you are the truth. And so, Lord, we, we have to acknowledge that we are who you say we are. We don't get to tell you who we are. You tell us who we are. And the way we know who we are is by knowing whose we are. And we don't get to treat people the way we want to treat people. We're supposed to treat people the way you would have us treat people. So, Lord, with those ideas in mind, we ask that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive what you have to show us, to tell us, and how you want to change us. So, Lord, stand on my shoes, give me your thoughts, speak with my mouth, so that this is your message for us, not my message for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this case... This, is, this, this comes in the gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, um, right after Jesus had sent out the 72. Um, so the, it, he's got the, uh, the apostles, the sent ones. He's got those 12. But then there's this larger gathering of people that are following around and that are dedicated. So there's, the, there's Jesus' inner circle, his best friends. And then there's a whole bunch of people that are following him that he knows and he loves and he trusts. And he gives them his authority and sends them all around the Galilean countryside. And then the next thing we hear is this lawyer. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, first of all, if you know what an oxymoron is, that is an oxymoronic question. It is a paradox. Anyone here receive an inheritance? No? Okay, good. Awesome. It'll never happen for me. And I'm not, I don't begrudge anyone. That's awesome. I know that my mother, who is, she's born at 44, and she's still very able, but because her parents had, had, had earned and saved, um, my mom being a single mom, she didn't ever finish college, all that kind of stuff, um, she's able to live a reasonably comfortable life because of what her parents left her. So I'm not, I don't begrudge anyone. But did you do anything to deserve said inheritance? Usually, almost exclusively, it's an accident of birth. And I don't mean that as a negative. It's, it's you were born into a family where, whose parents or grandparents saved up enough money and didn't use it all. They didn't spend their last dollar the day they died. And that money they had thought ahead and they had set it aside so that you would receive it. That is glorious. But you can't do anything to earn an inheritance. You could probably do some things to have it thrown away. You could probably do some things if, if it's set up in the will that if you're not, if you're not living a godly life, if you're not married, or if you're, if, if, you know, I know some people that put in their will that I don't want my kid who's, who's got addictions, I don't want them getting this money that's going to feed the addiction. So when they're clean and sober for a year, then they can, they can start having some of this inheritance. But inheritance is something given. It's not something you can do anything for. So this man, and this is that legal issue that basically saying, when the Lord is handing out blessings in the end, what must I do to make sure that I get mine? 
but he calls it an inheritance. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't take issue with him on that one. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and love your neighbors, you love yourself. That should sound familiar from the Shema. And Jesus says this, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. That's the everlasting life thing. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. No one's questioning whether we're supposed to love God with everything we have. But they've separated loving others is loving God. And loving God means that we must love others. They've separated that out. They've made it so that we can, we can look righteous without having to be righteous. And so Jesus, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the, road, the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan, as he traveled, or excuse me, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus asks this lawyer, this expert in the Jewish and rabbinic law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who, to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. You know this story. And it is a story. It's a parable. These events, to our knowledge, didn't happen. But I've been on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Um, there's a monastery in that, in that canyon that, that travels down. It, it is a, it's not a pleasant hike. And it, to pass by, if there's someone beat up and set on the side, let's just say that there's a, kind of a, 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 a cliff wall right here, which is kind of how it's set up. Um, and there's a man beaten right there. To pass by, there's a cliff over here. You have to, quite literally, they would have to do this. You're, he's not going to be more than four or five feet away from the guy. Um, so they all know, they have a picture in their head of what this road is. And it is a dangerous road. People, because there's lots of little caves and crevices that people can hide in. And, and, and they even did, on occasion, the kind of thing that we see in old, like, dystopian movies. Um, we saw this in uh, um, the book of Eli, if you've ever, if you've ever seen that movie, um, which is basically trying to rescue the Bible from how, how the earth has been destroyed, that the Bible was the most important thing. But the book of Eli, they set people up, pretended like someone was hurt so that passers-by would come, take pity on them, and start to help, and then they would raid them. They would, they would, they would mug them. That kind of thing happened back then. People are very creative about how they're going to harm other people. So it is possible... If, if this story actually happened, if, these, if, these, if this priest and this Levi really were honestly people that passed by a guy who's left half dead, it is possible that they thought 
This is a setup. And that's why they pass by, because if they go over there and they kneel down, they're going to get jumped. It is possible. It is also possible that the priest, if this says it's from Jerusalem to Jericho, but the priest and the Levite could be coming from Jericho up to Jerusalem. It's just the same road. You just, it goes both ways. So it could be that, and if you're, if you're a teacher of the law, if you're a, um, a, 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 God, a Mosaic law lawyer, you could be thinking, of course, the priest and the Levite pass by. This man is bleeding. He's half dead. Yes, it could be a trap, but he's bleeding and he's half dead. I'm on my way to the temple. I'm supposed to be clean spiritually and physically. If I help this man, then I'm going to be ritually unclean. And if he is indeed dead, it's going to take me about a week to be made clean again. So I cannot do the duty that God has called me to do in the temple. So it could be that they're thinking, I'm going to honor God instead of honor this man. But I want you to know, this is something you probably already know, but I want you to know if you've never heard this before, this parable was told often by rabbis. But never was a Samaritan the hero of the story. Jesus takes a lot of those, or the, 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 and we'll be talking about this in a couple of weeks, but um, the, the parable of the prodigal son, the wayward son, um, when they, they would tell that story, when that young man comes home, the father is supposed to meet him at the gate and said, I have no idea who you are. I only have one son. He's not supposed to receive him. So Jesus takes a lot of these stories that people use in order to communicate how God's people can separate themselves from everybody else, and he flips them on their head. And you're also aware that Samaritans were considered, and I don't, I'm using the term, that's how the commentators speak about it. It's how it's... It, it, it's how the rabbis talked about it, and I know it's not, it, 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 it's, not a, a, it's not a good thing, a good way to say things these days. But bloodlines were very important back then. To be wholly Jewish, to be in the line of David, to have, to have, to, to have your pure Israelite blood was very important. Samaritans had some Semitic heritage and some that wasn't. So they were considered half-breeds. They were considered people who are but are not godly, who worship God, our God, but they don't worship in the right place. They are descendants of Jacob, but they intermarried generationally with too many people, and they don't do the ritualistic cleansing. Therefore, they're unclean all the time. So there were the goyim, which are what we would call Gentiles, and Jewish people saw them as dogs. And then there were the Samaritans, and they were even worse. So never would a Samaritan be shown to be someone who comes through. And that's what Jesus does. This holy man, this priest, sees someone in need and does nothing. This holy man's support staff, that's what a Levite is, sees someone in need and he passes by. This evil, nasty, disgusting person that we're not supposed to ever have anything to do with, he comes by, he sees the man in need, and he takes pity on him. Not only does he take pity on him, but he helps him. He puts him on his own donkey so that now he and his property are bearing the burden of this man. 
He takes him to a place. He cleans him up with, with, uh, with, with oil and wine. Wine is a pretty good anesthetic. if It's got alcohol in it if that's the only thing you have. He takes him to an inn, and he takes care of him that night. And the next day, he gives two days' wages to the innkeeper and says, take care of him. When I come back, if it costs you any more, I'll reimburse you. That's a beautiful illustration of hospitality. It's where we get the word hospital, first of all. But it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful explanation, a beautiful picture of what hospitality is supposed to be. But I want you to, from this story, if we're going to be hospitable, we have to understand there's some risks involved. Hospitality could be dangerous. That could, again, it's just a parable. We don't know that this man actually walked down and saw a dead man, or a man half dead, but he could have been jumped. And while he was taking care of this man, they could have been jumped. It slowed him down. And it was costly. It cost him his money. It cost him his time. It cost him having to walk instead of ride his donkey. And it cost him whatever, wherever he was headed, when he was supposed to be there, he wasn't able to make it. It's inconvenient. He had to stop doing what he was doing, stop on the mission that he was on, and decided to, 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 to make this man his mission over his own plans. So it's, it, it, it's inconvenient, it's costly, sometimes it's dangerous, and it's almost true hospitality, not having someone at your house and treating them to a meal, that's, that's costly. Sometimes it's inconvenient, it's almost never dangerous, but sometimes real hospitality, where we get the word hospital, it's messy. This man was bleeding. So this Samaritan man had to get his hands dirty. He had to, with the sweat of his own brow, lift him onto a donkey and then lift him off and put him up in an inn and continue to tend to his wounds and his spirit. So hospitality, true Christian hospitality, is inconvenient, costly, messy, and sometimes dangerous. Let's think about how that might apply in our life. We've done this before. This is back in 2013 or 14. We had this book by uh, Claire DeGraff that we read um, called The 10-Second Rule. And what, what Claire DeGraff says is when, you're given a, when an opportunity presents itself, you're supposed to do what you're reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do in the next 10 seconds. Because otherwise you'll talk yourself out of it. Like if I'm driving down the road between here and Hudsonville and I see someone on the side of the road who, oh, I, I see a car on the side of the road and then a few, few, you know, a couple hundred yards later, I see a, let's just paint the picture, a, a 24 to 30 year old woman walking in the cold, no gas can, but something's wrong with her car. It's obvious I can make those connections. Dead car, person walking on the highway. What I should do, what I'm reasonably certain Jesus wants me to do in the next 10 seconds is hit my blinker, pull over and try to approach this person in a way that shows that I'm not a threat. And then ask them if I can give them, ask her if I can give her a ride, if I can, you know, if she needs my phone, whatever it might be. But what my brain does is tells me, you know what, she's going to think you're a creeper. And nowadays, think about it. People, people ambush people all the time. It's been happening since the first century for sure. But just imagine what it would be like if you were a 24 to 30 year old woman walking alone on the highway, just trying to get help. And someone out of nowhere pulls over, kind of slams on their brakes and, hey, 
you need help? That's just a little freaky. And actually, I've done this a couple of times. I know my way up to um, Ludington, this is, this is 15, maybe 20 years ago. Right before Apple, is it Apple Avenue in Muskegon? Um, right before Apple Avenue, um, there I saw a woman walking just like this. I pulled over and asked her if she needed a ride. She, she took me up on it and she got in the car and she starts dropping the F-bombs swearing like you've never heard it. I took her all the way to Whitehall, which isn't that far, but nevertheless, I drop her off at her place of employment. Never got a thank you, but I did offer her a card that said Reverend Trent Walker. <laughs> so as I'm hearing all this stuff when she's in my car, I'm being offended. And okay, rightfully so to some extent, but the other part was, am I here to help this woman or am I here to help this woman if she is the right kind of person? That's what Jesus is getting at. In fact, and this is the nuanced thing that I'm not sure we always notice. What Jesus is saying to this man and to all who heard him to stop doing what we do naturally. There's new brain science that says that you can sum up somebody their status by what their clothes are, how they carry themselves. It might be posture. It might be someone's hunched over. <coughs> In 40 milliseconds. So before any other judgment takes place in your brain, before you get to your prefrontal cortex and you can, you, can, you can decide what you're supposed to do, what would be good and right and noble and excellent and praiseworthy, your brain immediately decides, is that one of my people or is that one of the other people? That's what comes natural to us. And Jesus is saying right here, stop worrying about yourself and start focusing on the other. Stop trying to analyze who this other person is and instead analyze who you are. He's saying the motive, whether you help someone or not, shouldn't be whether they deserve it. The motive should be what does God call you to do? So instead of looking at the other, that's othering people, besides, instead of looking at the other and deciding whether they're worthy of my, or whether they would receive it, that's all, according to scripture, is irrelevant. What is relevant is, love the Lord your God with everything you have, and love your neighbor as you love yourself, and be a neighbor to all. Whether they're red-faced and angry with purple hair and they're screaming and yelling because you called them the wrong pronoun, or whether it's someone that you agree with politically and socially in every way you can, they should not be treated any different by a Christian when they're in need. Doesn't mean you can't debate. Doesn't mean you can't have your, your, um, you have your thoughts and try to win in the marketplace of ideas. Do it, but be thoughtful. Jesus, or, uh, Paul tells us, always be prepared to give a, a defense of the faith and the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness. Can we be quietly confident and treat people the way Jesus would have us treat them? Can we look at someone, even though our brain in 40 milliseconds, which is four, 40 thousandths of a second, that's how quick... <laughs> I don't know how they measure that. I have no idea how they hit the buzzer. No one can do that in 40 milliseconds. But that's the new science, that we immediately sum other people up. And what Jesus says to Christians 
is sum up yourself. Remember when he says, when you want to help your friend take a plank out of his own eye, or a speck out of his own eye, remove the plank from your own first. Then you will be able to help. It's, we're supposed to judge ourselves first before we cast judgment on another. Now, if this priest were real, I would hope that he had all the right motives to not help someone in need. I don't know what those would be, but they did this, this old, old, old preaching illustration. You may have heard it even back in the jungling days. But there was a seminary. They assigned their seminary students a first sermon. And they get seven minutes to preach on the Good Samaritan. And so they knew where the students stayed. They were coming to the chapel. And on the way, they put someone who was in need. Someone in pain, crying out uh, in one case. And in the other case, it was someone that was obviously looked like they were passed out. And not one of the seminary students stopped to help them on their way to preach on the Good Samaritan. Why? I've got a grade i got to get. I've been preparing for this. And I'm supposed to do it. This is my God-given mission right now. What we do often, and I know many of you are retired, so every day's a Saturday. Oh, I can't wait. But often we, we, we choose meeting over ministry. Often we choose convenience over hospitality. Often we choose the, peop- the right kind of people I will help and the wrong kind of people can help themselves. But Jesus flips that on its head. He says that unholy people, Samaritans, that's the view that the people had, were more faithful to the command of God to love your neighbor as you love yourself, and thereby you love God. This this unspiritual, ungodly man was more faithful to God than the godly, spiritual men. How does that sit on us? Because we know we're supposed to love our enemy. But what that actually requires is that someone who wants harm to you to come to you and is actively pursuing harming you, you bless them, you serve them, and you pray for them, not not the Christian way, not the West Michigan polite Christian way, where we pray for God to change them so we feel better, but actually pray that God bless someone who may be pagan, who may be heretical, who may be angry, who may be politically on the wrong side of things. Pray for God to bless them. Pray for God to give them insight. Pray for God to give them the opportunity to see how good God is. Instead of praying that their behavior change, Pray that their heart changes. We've talked about this before, that the law only changes behavior. But the gospel changes a heart. And I'll tell you a story I've told you before to kind of end on. Because Jesus is saying, stop assessing others and start assessing yourself. And Claire DeGraff would say, you have that initial thought, what you're supposed to do, and then we talk ourselves out of it. I'm sure that that Levite and that priest, if they were real and they saw this man, they have plenty of time to see him unless it's just around a bend. I'm sure their initial thought was, oh, poor guy. 
But then they, and they took 10 seconds and they thought about how inconvenient it was going to be, how costly, how messy, and how maybe dangerous. So they were adhering to the law and not to the gospel, not to the grace that God wants us to give. He gives to us and he gives to others. When I was a kid, we were going to Cedar Point. My brother Fred and I were arguing like crazy in the backseat of the custom cruiser Oldsmobile station wagon with the wood paneling on the side. And my mom, single mom, got four boys in the car. The two oldest are arguing and, and, and pretty bad. You know, the old, don't cross it. You cross my life, it's my side. You know, like stupid stuff. She goes, I'll pull the car over. She's not going to pull the car over. She pulled the car over. She got us out. Now, don't judge my mom. I grew up in southern Georgia. This is what happened. We used to get spanked. And she, on the side of the road, we're up there like we're getting frisked. And she starts spanking. My brother Fred looks at me and he goes, act like it hurts. Because I'm about, I'm about, I don't know, 11 or 12 right now. Um, so it, did, it hurt enough, but it didn't hurt. But he goes, so he gets, a, he gets a spank and he's like, he starts wailing, wailing. I'm like, okay. Because she stopped pretty quick comes to me, I start wailing. Meanwhile, there's a guy plowing his field on a tractor who walks up to the, to, to the barbed wire fence, I don't know, here to the other side of the hall. And my mom's, of course, okay, someone's going to call CPS or whatever. He goes, give him hack, lady. That's not the word he used, but I'm in church. <laughs> now, I know you've heard that story, and I, I, I can tell you it, it doesn't change because it's real. But when I got back in the car, my behavior changed. But my heart toward my brother did not. One is the law. It changes behavior. The other changes the heart. It wasn't until I became a Christian, actually, that my heart toward my brother Fred changed. Instead of looking at what he's done to me, older brother, pick on you, that kind of thing. Instead of always looking at what he's done to me, my God, the Holy Spirit who lives within me, started showing me that I should look at maybe at what I've done to him. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is an awesome parable. It starts off with someone who feels entitled and who wants to let Jesus know that he knows stuff better than Jesus does. And Jesus turns the tables on him. Instead of judging the other, judge yourself. Instead of summing up someone else, sum up yourself. And choose to do what is glorifying to God like the pagan ungodly, unspiritual Samaritan man did. He was more faithful to the God that you worship than you were. How might that apply to us? Because what Jesus says, notice that the lawyer couldn't even say the Samaritan. He said the one who showed mercy on the rock. But Jesus said, what does he say? Go and do likewise. That is our call. That is our Christian duty, especially for people that we don't think deserve it. Because neither do we. Because grace is getting what we don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So let us be graceful and merciful people, because that will show others who our God is. Let's not saying be a wimp. I'm saying treat people the way God would have you treat them. Serve even those, especially those that you don't want to serve. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.
for who you are. And even thank you for the lessons we don't want to learn. Thank you for this parable in all the different ways and contexts that you told it. We ask that you let this seep in and settle and that you give us eyes to see others clearly. How we might show grace to those who do not even know that grace is available and how we might decide not to judge the other but look in our own heart and see how much it needs to be transformed. Join us, Lord, as we lift you up, as we tell you who you are, as we worship you. In Jesus' name.